0: We're smart technologists. We think, of course, we understand what our customers are going through. Wrong.
1: All right. Thanks for joining us on All the Responsibility and None of the Authority, a podcast for product managers, product marketers, entrepreneurs, and innovators of all stripes. We're here to help you create better products and more successful product companies. Welcome Niels.
0: Thank you very much, Rob. Our topic today is uh, something that came up quite a few times. It seems like a few weeks ago, all of a sudden I was getting all these questions about getting feedback from customers and how to. what are some good ways of collecting feedback. Are, people want to know if I had any, any anecdotes, and I don't have that many anecdotes really, but. Um, they wanted to know, you know, what are some mistakes that people make and, of course, mistakes that I've made. Um, why, why do we make those mistakes when we're trying to get feedback from our customers? Um, what, have, what have I learned from the mistakes I've made and also the mistakes that I've seen other people make? And what kind of advice do we have for people who are looking to implement a sort of voice of the customer feedback problem? So that was a set of questions that I got. Um, actually from a number of different people all across the same week. It sort of seems like these things all happen. There's a wave, and I'll get a bunch of questions about the same topic all in the same week. I'm not sure why that happens. So I had an answer to that, and I know, Rob, you have some thoughts on the topic as well.
1: Absolutely. I was thinking maybe we set the stage to start with. Um, Hopefully nobody listening has never heard of the idea of getting customer feedback. If they have, uh, Google anything to do with product management and you'll see the word customer or user somewhere in anything reasonably written. That being said, uh, I think we should all be in agree- agreement that there's a good reason for that. And some of the answers and some of the questions we go through, but uh, we'll, we'll sort of add insight into why that should not be a question. But uh, I'd like to tackle one thing actually just, just came up to mind. The The only time you hear that you shouldn't be listening to a customer are sort of these odd quotes that seem to be taken out of context from like uh Mr. Ford and you know Mr. Jobs. And I'd like to tackle those quickly if possible. Um the first one being Steve Jobs always says, you know, never ask the customer, it's our job to tell them what they want. And then um from you know the Ford archives, there's a comment that if I had asked the customer what they wanted, they would have set a faster horse. And I think both of those are probably historically accurate. But likely miss out on the key concept, which is the form of the thing that you are providing to the customer is not always what they're asking. But the function, in most cases, is exactly what they're asking for, either explicitly or implicitly. So looking at the automobile versus horse, uh, if somebody said, you know, what do you want? They said, oh, I want a faster horse. Well, why? Okay, well, because you want to get from here to there. Oh, okay. What else would be really great? Oh, you know, it'd be cool if like, you know, the horse went even faster. So then if it's raining, I'm not outside in the wet all the time. Oh, that, that actually sounds like you just don't want to be in the rain. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's duh, right? So you get to all these questions. And all of a sudden you go, well, why wouldn't you just put something that goes really fast on the ground that has a full covering? Wouldn't you like that? They're like, well, yeah. Why didn't you ask for that? Well, I didn't know you could make it. So... It, you know same thing with like the iPod right nobody knew that they wanted an iPod until suddenly it was the coolest thing ever in reality they wanted to listen to music and they wanted to feel cool
0: so and they wanted and they wanted to listen to music the music that they wanted at that moment and if in fact if you even look at the history of music people have always wanted to listen to music and it's just the technology's gotten better and better it rob going back to the the quote about henry ford and you sort of drill down into that question that's what we call the five whys Have you heard of you've You've heard of that, of course. And uh, I don't know if if all the listeners do, but the idea being that you, if a a customer or somebody says, I would like X and you ask them, "Why, why do you want X? And then you, by asking why over and over again to each of their answers, you get eventually to the underlying, hopefully you get eventually to the underlying problem that they're really trying to solve in the case of the of Henry Ford's customers and horses. You know they were really trying to solve this problem of getting from one place to another, getting to one place to another, while being dry, while not being muddy, while not having to to feed the horse. You know whatever it might be. So very powerful, and that goes then to the techniques that we were asked about, you know, what are the techniques you use? The five whys is one of the great techniques for getting customer feedback.
1: Yep. And I think we've touched on what are the common mistakes. I think one of the most common mistakes is the assumption that the first question you ask will have a direct answer that relates to your product. And it can be too easy to hear a customer say, Oh, I want this feature. I want it to look like this and I want it to do this when I click a button. If you don't ask those five whys, or even three, heck, let's not even push people. If you even get to three, you'll realize that the first thing the customer said is not exactly or truthfully or more holistically what they need or want.
0: I run through a little example of that. So, you know, the customer says, well, I really like this button to be green. And what, well, why do you want it to be green? It's so I can pick it out easily from all the other buttons that are there. Well, why do you need to pick it out easily? Well, because 80% of the time I only push that button and the other buttons are, I always have to go find it. And so, you know, you, you that's three questions, right? Three whys. And you you get the realization that, oh, the problem isn't the button's gr- not green. The problem is there's all these other buttons that are distracting and aren't necessary.
1: Right. Or even the case, right. why do I need a button to do this thing? If I have to do exactly. it 8% of the time, why don't you just do it automatically for me?
0: Exactly. That's exactly the problem, right? And so one of the things that when I talk to customers i'm I'm not really very theory driven on how i do this i do like the concept of the five whys and things like that but i sort of have three main things that i go in with one is i always go in with the idea that i can't trust what people tell me about what they need or why they need it right that customers can say they want something and i really it's incumbent upon me to figure out what the real reason is they want something behind the surface reason or what the real need is behind what they say is their need. You know, that's my job to figure that out as the product manager. Because otherwise, I'm going to turn the button green and that's not going to be very interesting for anybody except possibly this customer who really will still not be that happy. Whereas I could have removed the button altogether, made the app just do the thing that this green button supposedly was there for and everybody would be a lot happier and there'd be a lot
1: less friction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that gets again to uh, getting to the underlying concept right so to me that always comes back to context being key so knowing that they want a green button that's great but why right in the context of the fact that there are a thousand other buttons oh i can see why it's really important you have a bright colorful button that you can pick out from everything else so in the context of what you're trying to do because you have to do it every day yeah a green button totally makes sense i'm not going to give it to you i'm going to find a better way to do it but understanding the context of your request Makes all the difference. And I think that's what the five whys really seek to help you do. So, another thing is I always have, um, I've always tried to remember to
0: ask open ended questions rather than closed end questions. And the difference between those, if you don't know, is um, a closed end question, the answer is yes or no. Uh, An open ended question is the answer can be anything. So, for example, um, would you like some ice cream? The answer is yes or no. What would you like for dessert? that's more of an open-ended question. What types of dessert do you like? Even more open-ended. And if you generally strive to ask open-ended questions, you don't constrain the thought processes of either yourself or the person you're talking to. Um, whereas if you ask a closed-ended question, you typically, uh, that that closes closes down the ability to do innovation and and thinking outside the box, so to speak. So for example, if you ask the customer, do you want this button to be green or blue? They're going to tell you either green or blue. But if you ask the customer, how often do you press this button? They might say, oh, 80% of the time I press it, 20% of the time I don't, or I never press that button or whatever. Um, Those are some answers that you can learn much more about if you ask open-ended questions.
1: A good example that, that I run into is we're, we're an e-commerce enablement tool. We effectively help sellers you know, run their business more efficiently when they're on a bunch of different channels. An easy way to ask some of these questions are, well, what do you use to sell and what do you use to ship and what accounting system do you have? Oftentimes, even just giving them a list of options would cut down the time that it takes to ask that question. However, asking them, tell me about your, your business process. Where do you sell? How do you get it fulfilled? And then you know, what do you do after that? and Who does what? can often fill you in on the rest of the org chart where either it invalidates the service or product that you have because for some reason it's already being done, it would be duplicative. And then in some cases, it shows you 10 other places where you could solve their problems, right? So again, asking those broader questions, the open-ended to tell the a story or to tell sort of as much detail as they're able to give, I think you're absolutely right. It would be super helpful. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: And so one of the things that is that you have to recognize as a product manager, and this kind of drives both of these observations drive back to that, is that you are not your customer. And I can give you a really good example of that. I'm a product manager. I've been a product manager for, as we've talked about, umpteen million years. And my pro- I had a product at one time that was for product managers. So I was a user of my product. I use it every day. It was a great product for product managers. But... I found every time I talked to one of my customers, I learned something that I did not know. I may have thought I knew everything about product management and everything about product management tools since I made them and I was a product manager, but yet every single time I talked to a customer, I learned something I didn't know. Something about how th- their product management process was different from mine, about how they thought differently about product management, about how things that I did in product management I could do better if I was thinking about it differently the way that they did. and so takeaway point sort of number zero of this whole thing is you're not your customer. And that means that whatever your customer says, even if you think you understand it, you don't. And they don't understand it either. We already talked about that. (laughs) They don't, you can't trust anything they say and you can't trust your understanding of what they said either. You have to, you have to drill down and ask more questions and explore the domain a little bit more. Um, and in the example you just gave Rob, you know, when you ask about the process as a whole, some of the things you learn about is places where the process breaks down, where you may have a solution for one piece and a solution for the other piece, but there's a it's hard to get between those two. And that's a great product opportunity right there. And if you don't ask about the process as a whole, you'll never hear about it.
1: And that sort of brings up another point. I mean, we had Hubert on here before. And, you know, he was a product manager, he's building a tool for product managers, but he still went through and interviewed, I think he said like a thousand product managers or he completed a thousand interviews that speaks to not only the, the humility to say, I'm not my perfect, you know, customer who knows everything about this, this problem, but also saying, even if I am my own perfect customer, I need to get enough data to be usable, right? There's the sample size concept. That even if you are like, let's assume you are the perfect customer, you're still not every customer, right? And no matter how good of a uh, of a target you think you've hit, you still need to gather enough data to say that you've sort of eclipsed the range that could just be outliers, right? So you're you're sort of doing the opposite of well, you're going for. um the law of large numbers, right? To me, there's an inverse. It's called the law of small numbers. The smaller the number, the more ridiculous your assumptions can be because there's nothing to really base it on. And I think a lot of companies will say, oh, I did, you know, five user interviews and they all said this, like, okay, great. Maybe that's because you worded something in the request for a user interview that brought you only those type of people. So that then leads into the concept of try to gather as much data as you can. And in most cases, do it as latently as possible. Find ways to just get information that doesn't require someone to sit down and talk to you because there's going to be time barriers. There's going to be, you know, even just language barriers, depending on who your customers are, that may stop you from gathering data. And you have, as a company that interacts with users, a hundred, if not more, specific channels where you could be gathering customer data. So pulling it in from, you know, support tickets, from sales calls, from account management, from onboarding, from, help chat from everything else you can think of is going to be a far more robust set of influences and, and data than 10 people that you spent an hour talking to.
0: Particularly if those 10 were your friends. Exactly. And so that's another, another thing to think about more generally is you also think about where are, what, what are the implicit biases of the channel that you're looking at? Right. If you're going and talk to ten friends, that may not be a terrible thing to do, but you have to understand that they're your friends. And so they're likely to say nice things about the thing that you're asking them about. Or they're they're likely to try to help you, as opposed to ten customers, ten prospects that you lost. Right? Sales deals is a great way to get to learn about your product is to find out why people didn't buy it. And they're gonna have a really different implicit bias about your product and about the competitive products. And it'll be really valuable to hear from them, but you should understand what their implicit bias is. And then of course, there's also the other side of the implicit bias, which is, are you asking questions that are leading the people to answer a certain way? This is a big problem with closed end questions. Or are you answering questions that are not leading, right? Uh, what was your favorite part of the product? That's a leading question, right? It's making people make a judgment that they had a favorite part, or that there was some part that they liked, um, and so that's another piece that you have to watch out for as you're as you're doing these kinds of things. And and as you say, doing some of these more automated things like looking at uh, how people are actually using it by tracking logs and things like that, those eliminate some of that some of that bias. On the other hand, those are your existing customers, and if you're interested in learning about what a different segment, how a different segment would interact with your product, you probably can't learn that much from
1: what your existing customers are doing. Right, right. You have to you have to understand what the, the context, again, the context of exactly. the data that you're pulling in. And that's a great point. You know, you can ask somebody, oh, what was your favorite part? And they kind of go, uh, I didn't really have a favorite part. I think it works okay. <laughs> you didn't really make me all that excited today. Sorry. And then you could even say the opposite. What was the most confusing part? And looking at a log or, you know, even a a screen tracking tool could say that they hovered over this one word like 300 times hoping that they could be able to click it. Or even they clicked it and they knew that they couldn't click it. They've already done it. It just, it, it has never clicked. And still they continue trying to click the word. And you go, I think that's the most confusing part for you. And they go, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Right.
0: There wasn't anything that was confusing. Oh, yeah, what about that thing you kept clicking on? Oh, that was confusing, yeah. Right, so again, you can't trust what people tell you. You really can't. Um, Because they don't know. It's not because they're bad. It's because they don't know. It's cognitively challenging for people to know. Um, I I did want to mention one other thing that that I have often seen people do, and I I have a bad bad experience with this, which is um, doing something like going out to your informants, whoever they are, whether they're your customers or some market segment that you're trying to learn from, Showing them what you're making and then asking if they like it or some version of that. And that's okay to do if you're trying to actually decide, determine whether the thing that you're building is usable, right? If the the question is, is the thing that I'm building usable? You already know that if you already know that it's solving an important problem for the market and you want to see if the design you have is good, then that's a decent test to do, right? You go out and have some people work with it and see if they can make use of it and if they like it, if, they, if they're not offended by it. But if you're thinking about, if you're trying to decide whether you should build a product or not, you know, so you're do, you're earlier in the process, it's really a bad idea to show people what your idea is and then ask them if they like it. Because most people are going to say yes. In fact, most people will say that they will buy it and then they will never buy it. And in fact, one of my previous companies was sunk by this type of market research where literally some of the execs went out with a mock-up and said, we're thinking about building this thing. Would you buy it if we built it? And they got enough yeses that they decided to invest a large amount of money into it, and we literally sold $0. Terrible. It is is not an effective way to do market research, and that's one of the biggest takeaways I have. You have to be more subtle, and it's just as you said, right? You have to to be able to, to do things like, Testing the how people actually do things, or you have to ask why five times. Um, you know, you just and, and it's a similar. You know, salespeople actually address or salespeople actually have a lot of these same challenges when they're out talking to to prospects, right? And there's a lot of techniques that salespeople use to get feedback from their customers and to get the customers to open up about their problems. Um, things like. This open versus closed questions and when to use which, um, how to validate that the customer has a problem, when to use a closed-ended question because there's sometimes you want to do that, and also how to do things like trial closes where you say, maybe you've elicited that there is a problem that the customer is trying to solve, and you say, if we had something that would do this, would that be would that be appealing? You don't want to say. You don't necessarily want to say, will you buy it? You might say that. But what you really want to do at that point is you are asking a closed-ended question where you want to get a yes or a no answer. It's called a trial close. And if you can get a yes, then that's a good indicator that you should move forward with getting more validation.
1: Right. And one of the things that that does actually mentally is it, it sort of buckets sections. And you get this gatekeeper effect of saying, so you wanted to do X, Y, and Z. Let me tell you about X. So if the product does X, does that sound appealing? Right, And now suddenly... Even the consumer, the person on the other end of this pitch is going, okay, I have this concept called X. And the last thing I remember saying is that I liked it. So that whole entire segment of features or functions has now been encapsulated by this thing that I'm calling X. And I've already said, yes, I like it. Right. Right. So you're, yeah. you're sort of chunking things down. And if everyone goes, oh, well, you know, there's four things. And I said yes to all of them. Sounds like it's great. Let's buy it.
0: Yeah. It, you know, so it's, it's, it's not a rational process, right? It's, there is a lot of this psychology that you can use, um, and it's obviously more appropriate to use some of that psychology in an actual sales cycle as opposed to in a customer feedback cycle, right? Because with customer, with customer feedback, you're really trying to get to the truth in some sense, whereas in a sales cycle, you're really trying to get to a buy, which hopefully is backed up by the fact that the customer will get value.
1: Right. But now I think we probably skipped over something that, that maybe some of the listeners are are pointing out in their mind when you were talking about going out to the market and asking if somebody wants to buy something and showing them a mock-up and, and getting enough yeses, right? That sounds a lot like, like an agile or sort of a, an early version of getting market feedback. So how do, how would you say that somebody could go about actually getting realistic feedback and identifying that they should continue investing in a product in a different way or a more effective way? Or is there a way to maybe drop the amount that they invest and get an actual buy-in earlier? Maybe i just mm-hmm. answer that question. But sure. to me, that that sounded on the surface like a good practice. Oh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to ask a bunch of people if they would buy this. And if they all said, yes, great, I should go build it.
0: Right. No. So the way to do it, I mean... The ideal thing is you go out and sell it to people, and if they buy it, then you build it. If they actually give you money,
1: right? But let's assume that not everyone can sell hopes and dreams.
0: <laughs> so I think this is the whole concept of the MVP. So it's a it's another type of customer feedback, right? The minimum viable product that Eric Reese talks about in in the Lean Startup. And I think there's a lot of confusion about the MVP. But to me, the MVP is what what's the minimum amount of work I have to do to get validation for a question that I have or a hypothesis that I have about the, the, the market and what they want. Right? So, you know, my favorite example from Eric, he, he talks about in the talks, I think it's in the book as well, is that if you have an idea for a product and you would sell it over the internet, set up a landing page, direct some traffic there and see if anybody clicks through, right? It's, it's not a, a real product. I mean it's not a product I mean, you know a lot of people get hung up on the idea that minimum viable product says has the word product in it but it's really about testing a hypothesis my hypothesis is that people want something that does this thing that I'm going to describe on this landing page if they want it they'll click if they don't want it they won't click and I'm going to set up a threshold for what I for what I've decided is means I should move forward versus I should not you know if I get 10 clicks then I'll move forward if I get less than 10 clicks i'm going to pivot
1: right now it can often be a misnomer though because i'm going to go back and say that there is a thing called a minimum viable product which must do something right the minimum viable concept would be what i've described on a landing page and if somebody clicks through i could be selling them you know a house on mars and they're like sweet i got it it sounds like it's 100 bucks i'm gonna i'm gonna buy it sweet um but the minimum viable product, in my perspective, is to say that what is the smallest thing that I can deliver to someone that they will buy and be happy with? So if we go back to the button situation where somebody says, oh, I, I, I want a green button because I click it 80 times out of 100, right? That could be your minimum viable product. The thing that happens when that button is clicked could probably be sold all on its own. Which is where a lot of people are considering this minimum viable product concept. Yeah.
0: Well, I, and I, I sort of, I I understand that where you're coming from on that concept, but I actually still think the landing page that just has a button where you then cl- sign up for more information. That is a minimum viable product. I believe because it's, it's testing. It's, it's helping you answer a question that you have or a hypothesis that you have. Now I know there's not everybody agrees with me on this. Just, just reality. Um, some people say, yeah, you have to, it has to be something you can sell and that people can do something with.
1: Well, no, this... let's let's be clear. There's a lot of products out there that people can't do anything real with, and you can't really even deliver to them, and they still buy anyway.
0: Well, then how is that different then from a landing page that I click, yep, add me to your mailing list?
1: Well, to a certain extent, adding to a mailing list, I'd agree. I'd go back to – I can't remember if it was Steve Blank or if it was Ron Conway who said the first dollar you ever get from somebody is the hardest, where – Somebody should have to put money behind, you know, giving you their email because their email, I have a spam email. I think I have two spam emails. (laughs) I'll give you whatever you want. But to actually give you a dollar, like, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's a credit card profile. That's the ability to charge me in the future. That's a whole different level of enthusiasm, even if it's a dollar.
0: I totally agree with that. But you can't say that having somebody click through a landing page is not something.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's generation of interest, and it's buy-in, and it's tracking that somebody is willing to go forward with the concept.
0: It has to do with what your, what your hypothesis is.
1: Right. But right. that doesn't mean that if that's my, the smallest my, thing that if you if my produce. hypothesis
0: If my hypothesis is that somebody will give me a dollar for this, then, yeah, I have to have something that's worth a dollar. If my hypothesis is that somebody and I can't it has to be probably more than a landing page, maybe not. Um, if my hypothesis is that there's some level of interest, if I if I let 500 people know about this thing, and 50 people say that they've got some interest, that means yeah, there's some interest in it, and I can move forward to the next thing, which is getting people to give me a dollar. This is a, actually a whole different podcast topic, but it's kind of interesting because it is related to this customer feedback question, right? Customer feedback can be I go out and ask the customer some questions or I put something in front of the customer and they take some action, or the customer is using the product and they do use it in a certain way and I and I ha- am able to track that and get some insights based on what they do.: Absolutely right so there's a wide range of things that I think we've covered.:
1: I totally agree. We'll definitely have another follow-up on on what MVP is and what you know minimum viable concept, whatever those differences may be. Hopefully right. we'll get an expert in here as well.
0: That would be nice to get an expert uh to school us both, or at least me. I need some school. I think both obviously. of us need it for sure. <laughs> so I think um, you know, we covered a lot of topics here.
1: Yeah, and we're really. we're still under the 30 minutes, so but I think I, I think uh, wrap up might be in order.
0: Wrap up. So key points. Uh one, you're not your customer. Yeah, that's and like base expectation. That's that's a really important thing. It's really hard to remember though, because you know, as we're we're smart technologists, we think of course we understand what our customers are going through. Wrong. Um, it, you do, you do not basically is the, is the answer to that. Um, and your customer, so this is really point number one, that was point number zero point number one, your customer doesn't know best, um, and you can't trust what they say, but this isn't because they're bad. It's because they don't really know. Right. And so you have to use techniques like the ones we talked about to improve the value of the information you get from them. Whether that's, um, you know, asking open-ended questions and asking why five times or, um, you know making a trial close making sure not to well point number 3 is really don't show things before doing some discovery but you know your customer doesn't know best and so you have to work with them to elicit to elicit really what the underlying problems are right and this is particularly if you're looking for product ideas if you're looking for the for to validate a product idea you can't just tell people here's my product idea what do you think you have to elicit whether they have the problem that your product is supposed to solve and whether they're going to be willing to pay money for that.
1: This point number 1 would be where uh you know where Steve Jobs is misquoted all the time and where you know the Ford example comes up, right? The customer right. has good information, but they don't really know explicitly what's best. Right. So uh number 2, I think we said asking five asking why five times. So the 5 whys to actually get to the heart of that, which you know, kind of plays into number one, but uh, more explicitly continue to dig until you feel like you've hit sort of the, the rock bottom, the, the true basis for which the customer is giving you certain feedback.
0: Number one is the the overall theory. Number two is a technique. And number three is something not to do, which is if you show your stuff before doing discovery or if you ask closed-ended questions, you're going to get answers that are not really usable. You're not going to be learning as much as you should. In fact, you may be losing learning things that are not true. Um, but because we're humans, they'll seem like good answers and, um, you should not act on them. (laughs) You should make sure that you've asked good, that you've done good job of discovery before you start acting on, on the answers that you get, because otherwise it's on you. Yep, If you act on that information, because it's not going to work out very well. And
1: this is actually, it ties in well to what a sales rep will do in, in a lot of cases, right? Where they go in, they do a discovery for what does the customer have a problem with. And mm-hmm. then the smartest of them will either be taking notes or be able to remember all the pain points and the way that they describe them. And then during a demo or while they're revealing the product, they'll map each and every one of those pieces or pain points or functions to something the product already has. And that's critical for really complex or potentially confusing products, but is a skill that makes sense here, right? If you understand what the customer needs and then you show them the product, you can point out explicit where you think you're solving the problem and get their feedback. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's got a even got a name. It's called solution selling, and it's the way salespeople get rich.
1: Absolutely. It's how Oracle became Oracle and SAP became SAP. That's right. Nice. And actually, I think that makes sense. I think I did that the other day. I was interviewing somebody on a on a new product we just released, and asked them questions ahead of time, hopefully, and then tried to map it semi-successfully to what we built.
0: It's a it's a really good skill to have. Um, I use it all the time, and I'm, I work a lot with our salespeople to get them better at doing that. It's one of my one of my big uh, non product oriented goals is to get my salespeople to be really excellent at doing solution selling. Right on. Because I want them to be successful. That makes me successful.
1: Of course. All right. So it sounds like that's the end of it. Um, I think we'll wrap up here, say thank you to the listeners. Thank you, Nils. And uh, thanks again to, uh, I think this is the first time we're going to mention it, but a good friend of the show and an awesome artist named Neat Beats who does our intro and outro music. If you want to check him out, he's at neatpeats.com dot that's n-e-a-t-b-e-a-t-s dot yeah
0: awesome music loving the music that we've got on the show
1: all right until next time
0: thanks a lot rob see ya fire four three two one we have ignition